Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Friends, I am so excited to share with you my interview with Brandy Cheyenne Harper. Brandy is an interdisciplinary artist who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and she is, hands down, one of my favorite human beings. And after you listen to this interview, I am certain she will be one of yours, too. She is a font of lived experience and wisdom on the intersection between creativity and self-care. Brandy designs and writes books on how to make knitwear. She's worked with Etsy, West Elm, Better Homes and Gardens, and Country Living, Pearl Soho, A Verb for Keeping Warm, Vogue Knitting, and Abrams Books, who just published her new book, Knitting for Radical Self-Care. I'm thrilled to have her on today. Her perspective on self-care and what is radical about it, on work, on trust, and on joy are all incredibly encouraging. Let's welcome her to the show. Brandy, I am so excited to have you here today on the Lisa Congdon Sessions. Welcome. Uh, Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yay. Okay, so... I'm so excited about all the things I want to talk about today. And I want to start by saying this, and this will lead to a question. There are these two integrated parts of you, right? It's the integration that I find so wonderful and something we should all aspire to. And that is the integration of knitter, creative, businesswoman Brandy and human Brandy. Yes. Who is committed to living well including really committing herself to actual radical self-care. So before we get into talking about how that integration really coalesced for you and why knitting is the perfect combination of creativity and radical self-care, I want to talk about how you got into knitting. So take us back to your childhood, where you grew up and what you were like as a kid that led you to knitting. So I was a little uh, crabby little kid, you know, I had, um, I was definitely very introverted always, even as a little kid, I remember one day I was just knitting, I was sitting in front of the television before, like this is after, you know, I learned how to knit and I remember I was sitting in front of the television, my mother was a nurse at the time, she left at like seven o'clock in the morning and I was sitting on the couch, I was probably watching like Bob Ross or like some cooking show and not really realizing that I was also really susceptible to something called ASMR. So I was like knitting and watching like, you know, television that would basically relax me and calm me and like make me want to fall asleep and feel deeply relaxed. And she came back from work around three o'clock and I was sitting in that same place. And she says, where did I get you from? So when I was your age, because I was like at the time had to be like 15 or maybe 16. And she said, I don't know where I got you from. When I was your age, I was painting my Miami red, you know, like, she was like, where did I get you from? So I've always been like a really creative kid. I remember I used to create these really, these huge murals on our wall. We lived in a three bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, New York. There were like eight of us in this, this three bedroom apartment. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. 
But we lived so like such a full life. My mother was like so creative. There was always music happening in the apartment. She, she would have like these beautiful, like huge, like hot dog nights. And she just made it really fun. And, you know, I had a lot of siblings, but I spent a lot of time like alone. I actually spent a lot of time alone making things, creating like these murals on my walls. And then mm. when I was 14, my grandmother, over the course of a couple of years, my grandmother started sending us these beautiful crocheted Afghans from Florida to Brooklyn for each of us. And there were like these, like these huge, I mean, everyone knows these Afghans, like the, like the granny square Afghans, right? Like that's made in like 100% acrylic and like with the big flowers at the center. And I wanted to learn how to make the flowers. And so I taught myself to crochet. And then I think, you know, I went to a really creative high school. I went to LaGuardia, Fiorello H. LaGuardia for performing arts and visual arts. And I was a vocal major and I would travel from Brooklyn to the city. It was like an hour and 45 minutes away. But I remember just being on a train, I was crocheting, and I saw this really incredible, like, beautiful human being, like, tall goddess of a person. And they were, like, leaning against the door, and they were just knitting. And I was like, oh, wow, like, I want to learn how to knit next. And so I taught myself how to knit, just using, like, scholastic news pamphlets that I got from school. Wow. Like, you know, those books, like, you were able to get, like, creative books, like knitting books and, like, other kinds of books for, like, a dollar or three dollars through school. And so I got, like, knitting books through scholastic news, and I taught myself how to knit from those books. Vogue knitting, the big book of knitting were, like, two of my favorite books. And then I was using, like... At the time, I remember Nitty.com was really popular. So I was like using online resources, books from the library to teach myself how to knit. And yeah, I learned how to crochet when I was 14, inspired by my grandmother. I learned how to knit, you know, when I was 15, inspired by like the stranger on the train. And Mm. I started working at a yarn shop when I was 16. And that pretty much went like bing into like my career as like a knitting teacher, pretty much skyrocketed pretty early on. But as a kid, I wasn't really creative little kid always yeah yeah Yeah. oh my gosh I love I've heard you tell this story before which is why I asked you to tell it because I just love it so much (laughs) you know like the ways that we all find like our thing I don't know I just I love it yeah yeah so you are really truly one of the most joyful people (laughs) I have ever met And you speak about joy as an act of resistance. Oh, yeah. So I want to dig into that a little bit. What does that mean and why is it important? You know, Lisa, something that I realized is that um, people are really taken aback, actually, by by happiness. You know, it surprises them. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I worked in a lot of different jobs since I was 14. I've worked for the United States government. I've worked for, you know, i worked for the state, New York State. I've worked for startups. I've worked for, like, cafes, you know, small business, you know, mom and pop shops. And I've organic cooperative, you know, food cooperative. And I've been in contact with, like, literally thousands of people, I feel like, in, like, just in my career and being out in the world. And I'm pretty much the same everywhere I go. You know, I'm, I'm generally, like, a really joyful person. It's just it's nothing I can really... You know, I can't help it, you know, like it just comes from me. It's just what it is. And I think it's not that I'm always happy is that like when I'm out in the world and I'm living, I just feel really happy to be alive. Hmm. And what I've come across is that I've just had really interesting interactions where like people have been like suspicious. Like I've had people, one person I remember he said it was a compliment, actually, but I was leaving a job. I had given my two week notice. And as I was leaving, he said, 
he said, oh, you know, Brandy, I just want to wish you the, you know, so well, you know, I'm usually suspicious. And I remember this because I remember writing it into my app note as soon as he told me, because like, that's the most hilarious going away, <laughs> you know, greeting or like going away, wish you well kind of statement I've ever heard. He said, you know, I'm very, I'm usually very suspicious of happy people, mm. but yours seems to radiate from a place that truly believes we can work together and make mm. the world a better place. Mm. And I said, wow, like that's such a sweet thing to say, mm -hmm. but also it's not the first time I've heard people say things like that. Suspicious, disarming. I've had people are kind of like, some people like there's at least one person who's gonna listen to this, but like, I hate happy people, they're obnoxious. <laughs> I've had, you know, people say that like, happy people are obnoxious or annoying or insincere, right? And so mm -hmm. for me, when I say joy is an act of resistance, like I think for me, sharing my joy is telling the world and resisting this idea that we're not meant to be happy. And maybe even as like a black femme, like that I'm not, it's surprising for people to see me happy all the time. You know, I think the way often black women in particular, black femmes are portrayed in media and just in like mainstream like sitcom television right like you know there's always kind of like the stereotype is like angry like disgruntled worker like you know like it's always that kind of image being portrayed and so I think when I interact with people in the world they're generally really disarmed and suspicious and um, have used these words, honestly, to, to describe me, you know, and I remember working, you know, running up the stairs one day at work and someone that I didn't interact with a lot said, you know, you're always so happy. And they said it that way, like, like you, you're, you're always so happy, yep. like annoyed. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I was like, no, not always, but most of the time. And this person didn't know me well. They didn't know that, like, I cry and like I get angry and I get frustrated and I have to hold my boundaries and like have a straight face, you know. But I think for me to share my happiness is telling the world that not only do I deserve happiness, I am worthy of it. It's a birthright. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to quench it. I'm not going to shrink. You know, my light is going to shine so bright and some people are not going to be able to look at it. They're going to, they're going to look away, but that doesn't mean that I should put myself in this little dark box to fit into whatever stereotypes people have around who I should be in this world, you know? And so for me, I, I kind of resist this idea that I'm supposed to be sad or disgruntled or feeling powerless, even with everything happening in the world and in my own history as a, as the, how I identify that I actually deserve peace and happiness and joy every single day of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, amen. Um, <laughs> I, uh, long answer short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that kind of, so, so like one of the things I love about you is that you talk openly about this, exactly what you just said, the fact that we are as humans, neither all good, all successful, all knowing or all bad, all failure, all ignorance, right? Yeah. We're so complex and layered and we can be all the things we can be happy and also grieve what's happening yes. in the world. Yes. You wrote somewhere I can be successful and still so far from where I want to be. Yes. I can work hard and also be a restful person. I can be grieving for what I've lost and still deeply grateful for what I have. I can be saddened and disappointed and be filled to the brim with hope and admiration. And 
this is something I talk about a lot too, that joy is not binary. No, it's not. Right? <laughs> I'm like tearing up hearing my writing Aww. because um, <laughs> it's so true, you know, I think. Yeah. I think joy is, when I say joy is not binary, you know, I'm such a watery person for the record, okay? I am a cancer sun, Pisces rising, cancer moon. I'm so filled with water. When I'm happy, I cry. When I'm sad, I cry. When I'm like overwhelmed with happiness, I tear up. So anyway, <laughs> joy is not binary. I think sometimes we feel like we have to know everything. We have to like be everything. We have to be happy all the time or, or just be okay all the time, right? And I truly don't believe that to be true, right? Like I think joy is basically the way that we, we are able to hold it all in both hands. You know, I think we sometimes, you know, kind of separate happiness from sadness and something that I think it was Maya Angelou says is like, tears aren't, you know, what did, what does she say? She says like, tears are actually the other side. Ah, oh, man, I can't think of it now. But this idea that like, you know, when we think about sadness, we think about you know, happiness being on the other side of it. But what joy does is it allows us to kind of feel what we're feeling at any time in any moment. So even though I could be like, oh my God, look what's happening in the world right now, even as you and I speak, Lisa, like it's heartbreaking, you know, but also feel so deeply grateful that when I look out the window, I see the flowers in bloom and it brings me so much joy that I can experience what the earth provides every single day and also feel very deeply in a state of grief at the way the world actually operates on a day-to-day -day basis for so many people who are, are really suffering in the world, you know? And so kind of knowing that we can have both allows us to, to kind of be able to greet each day with the opportunity to actually help the world in the way that we know we have the capacity to do, like I know I have the capacity to change the world, but also kind of step back from that role sometimes and just actually just deeply appreciate it, you know? And so, you know, joy, joy for me is like, I can be deeply capable in one area of my life and completely inadequate in another part of my life continuously keeps me open to receiving what it is I need to live the life I want to live, you know? And if I'm always one thing, I think it just starts to close us off to so many opportunities of like knowledge and relationships and, and emotions and feelings. Like we have to kind of allow ourselves to feel all the feelings and the feelings will if we're actually going to really be able to enjoy this human experience and try and like siphon it off and like decompartmentalize it, I think actually puts us in a place where we can't actually feel what we need to feel to be able to be the people we want to be and support the world in the way we need to support the world to make it a better place. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's that's basically <laughs> how I feel about joy. And it's not always being happy. It's about having the capacity to feel very deeply all the emotions that we can feel as humans. And sometimes that's going to be anger. And sometimes that's going to be outrage. And sometimes that's going to be like bliss, you know, and sometimes it's going to be grief. It's going to be sadness. It's going to be disappointment. But joy is actually every single emotion we feel balled up into one. Right. And the, the negative or that the hard stuff, the, the painful stuff doesn't negate the joy. And I think, you know, as people who are on social media and have social media followings, I'm always sort of thinking about like, am I being tone deaf with my joy because the world is falling apart around me? Yeah. Right. Like, am I doing a disservice yeah. or 
am I being helpful by like being joyful in the face of tragedy? And I work really hard to acknowledge, you know, all of the hard stuff and, you know, contribute to like you, you know, trying to heal the world. But yeah, um, yeah, this is something I've really had to come to terms with because like you, I mean, I was one of those kids who I wasn't necessarily super extroverted, but I've always, you know, my mom used to describe me as like having joie de vivre when I was a kid. (laughs) And I think there were some years in there in my twenties and thirties when I quashed it and lost it because I thought I had to be serious or I thought I had to be brooding to be a good, you know, punk or yes. queer person or whatever. <laughs> yes. And I just, I'm like really come back into my joy in my forties and fifties. And it's like such a gift. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm a happy person, you know? And it's this weird thing that we've kind of, I think a lot of us have learned to become ashamed of because there is so much pain in the world. And so many people do suffer from anxiety and depression. And, yes. and honestly, I did too. And I think that's part of why I can really feel the fullness of my joy is because I know what it feels like to want to die, right? Yes, yes. And that's just like that spectrum is so profound to me. It really is. And I mean, I I will speak to social media piece, something that has really come up for me a lot because the same, right? Like actually have, you know, I have, I love my community that I've, I've spent so many years like building and supporting and I feel really lucky and feel really blessed. I also think that there is definitely some requests. I get special requests. I get like there's some clear expectations to speak about, you know, some 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 of the things that are happening in our world, specifically around in the knitting community, when we start thinking about, you know, racism and, and representation in the knitting community has been a big conversation for the last couple of years. Um, it's been there present pretty much for a long time, but it kind of exploded a couple of years ago. And being asked to participate, I've had to really ask myself, is this something that I want to participate in? Is this content I want to create for my community? And I've, I've made conscious choices to disengage from certain kinds of conversations. I also am really careful about how I consume news. So when I share myself and I share my work, I kind of assume that people who are looking for news or who are looking to know what's going on in the world are finding the sources they need to get them the news that they need. Like my expectation is that not every single person I follow, every single person is gonna be talking about the news or talking about some tragedy every single day. Like I actually seek out certain kinds of people who not only share the news or who are you know, sharing what's happening in the world, but also share a care practice around it. They share resources for support around it, right? They're just not saying, look at this awful thing that's happening in the world. Here's a meme, right? It's here, look what's happening in the world. And next week we're having a a community gathering where we're going to be talking about it in a way of what we can do. Here are resources where we're sending, where we're redistributing funds. Here's a book you can read. There's aftercare, right? So for me, anytime I think about when I share news or I share something that's sad or I share something that's not necessarily joyful, I always think, okay, what can I do to buttress this? How can I share the news, but also share ways to care and take care of what I'm sharing, you know, like aftercare, you know, like built in aftercare. And for me, sharing like my plants and sharing, 
you know, my like little, like my silly little things, you know, where I'm just like, look at my little cookies that I made, you know, and like, look at my plant. It's so beautiful. Or like showing a bird on a tree, you know, those things are, that's, that's a care practice. Like my hope is that someone will see that and feel better about the world that they're living in and actually want to engage with it and make it better. So I stopped kind of demonizing myself for like always being happy on the internet or like this is not authentic. It's actually what I'm sharing is a care practice. It's how I care for my community. You know, being joyful is an act of care and it doesn't mean my head's in the sand. It's I'm providing a solution to the problems that we face in the world. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that's a way to look at it, especially when I engage with social media, that what I share is is medicine. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about radical self-care. You wrote a book called Knitting for Radical Self-Care, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But yeah, before we do that, let's talk about, you know, you're talking about care for your community, but it really does start with oh self-care. So, yes, because you can't give to others unless you, really authentically, unless you're taking care of yourself. So what does radical self-care mean to you and how would you define it? Oh my gosh. So the first quote I use in the book, and thank you so much for like shouting out my book, mm-hmm. is Angela Davis says, you know, radical simply means grabbing something at the root. So when we start to think about self-care or how we better take care of ourselves, we have to start to kind of look at the root of who we are, right? Starting off with how do we identify in the world, right? Like what is our worldview? So for me, it's like, okay, what are my identities and how does that inform how I take care of myself? Because we all, you know, culturally, there's expectations about how we should show up in the world, right? Like as femmes or like as women, right? In the world that we live in, we generally are the caretakers, right? Like we are like the silent economy, right? We are taking care of the world. We're taking care of the children and a lot of, a lot of countries, you know, and a lot of cultures, you know, so that informs how people view me as like a caregiver, right? And so I have a tendency to, and this is also my history is like, and my, my mom had, my mom had eight kids. She was a nurse. Mm. She spent her life taking care of people, you know? And so that's what I saw. Like a, I had a woman in my life who took care of me, took care of her husband, took care of her patients. Like she took care of people. So I had to kind of also look at the ways in which I would overgive. I would overextend. I would people please. And this is a something that was something I'm still unraveling, Lisa. Mm, like Me too. <laughs> you know, yeah, like the people pleasing and like wanting to be liked or wanting to feel like I'm being useful and connecting my self-worth to how I take care of other people. And realizing that later in my life, I started to realize that like my health was deteriorating, you know, my own dreams and my own business was like always on the back burner in place of other people's projects or other people's desires or other people's requests. And I started to really look at the life I was living and realizing I wasn't really living my life for me. I was living my life for other people. So when I think about radical self-care and really looking at the root of it, I had to look at the fact that like me as a human being, as a, as a femme, as a queer person who wants to be like, I feel kind of outside of the spectrum in a lot of ways. Like I want, I want to be loved, you know, I want to like feel appreciated in the world and like, you know, as a, as a femme, you know, as a woman, as a black person, you know, that all informs how I take care of myself and how people view me. And so I had to really kind of unravel and also capitalism, like 
constantly working, constantly working and, and associating my success with how much money I was earning or not earning or how many opportunities I was getting or not getting. And in so many ways, I was deprioritizing myself. And so radical self-care for me and I hope for anyone listening is kind of looking at the ways in which you were socialized, looking at the ways in which you were raised as a child and figuring out where, where did you lose yourself and why? And then once you start to recognize where the issues are, so for me, it's people pleasing, overgiving, overextending. Once I started to realize that that was something that was actually taking me further and further away from myself, I was able to start practicing self-care in a real meaningful way beyond just going to yoga or eating well. Like it was like saying no, it was prioritizing my dreams. It was having really strong boundaries that were very uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden I started to have a lot more time, a lot more space to take care of myself in a way that actually empowered me to take care of other people in a more sustainable way without resentment and like frustration that I was doing it. Because that was also with people pleasing, I was giving, 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 and then wasn't feeling like I was getting enough. And then I would be resentful of others, but it wasn't their fault. Like (laughs) you want to keep on giving, like, and you can't be mad at me, you know? And so I had to also start to realize that I was actually not building the relationships I wanted to build because I was giving from an empty place. And so self-care for me is like, and I read somewhere and I can't remember where now. And it was like boundaries or the distance in which I can love you and me simultaneously. Mm. And so acknowledging what my boundaries were, what I need, acknowledging that, setting the boundary and then honoring those boundaries for the benefit of both me and the people in my life. That's an ongoing practice for me, Lisa. Like that's to today is still happening. And I think that's yeah. for me, radical self-care. That's what it means to me. Yeah. And that's actually the integration that I, you know, what I was talking about when I opened our conversation that I think is so profound and that so many of us are working on some of us a little later in life. Yeah. But, you know, especially as women, we are socialized to, you know, say yes yeah. put other people's needs in front of our own. Yeah. And I, I, I know because I have a lot of women of color in my life that for that, for you, mm-hmm. it is kind of doubly important. Like this whole notion of self-care really yeah. kind of was developed by black women. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, the extent to which you are socialized to have no identity outside of yourself is even more extreme than in, 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 you know, many cultures. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think it's just the history, yep. our history for the last like, you know, 500 years, specifically not even talking about when we talk about the transatlantic like slave trade, right? This is like, this is like the heavy stuff, <laughs> but like in America, yeah. Like in America, for sure, for black women in America. Yeah. That's like our history, you know, in this country is like taking care of other people. And so there's a lot ingrained in that. And it kind of, you know, wealth, ideas, ideation, hopes, dreams travel through the generations. And so it's definitely a part of being a black woman in this country. It's like this idea that you're designed to take care of other people. And it's kind of reinforced in, in what we read and what we watch, which is why it's so exciting. I'm so really excited about what's, you know, kind of like seeing what kind of movies that are being made now and the kind of like music that's being made now and like, you know, the platforms that you know, black artists, specifically black women, are being given to kind of share stories that show us some, like these beautiful positions of power and like having creative control over our work and being able to really speak to 
our history, not from a place of like sadness, but from a place of empowerment is this has been really exciting, really. Like I like Issa Rae. I'm like, yes, Issa Rae. Like I'm very <laughs> like good for you. I'm like so excited, you know, like there's so many, we have so many beautiful like role models, like in my generation who are like really kind of stepping out of like stepping out of the shadows in a lot of ways for all of us, you know, and kind of being like, look, we're like powerful and beautiful and we have our issues and we're working, we're still working things out like any other human being. But, you know, we are taking care of ourselves and we are like living the dreams that we want to live and being role models for others to do the same. It's really exciting, really, actually. I feel like I'm yeah. living in a really exciting time. <laughs> I agree. And I, I feel like, you know, this, this idea of being a powerful businesswoman and maker and creative and also that actually like the the self-care is not antithetical to that. It's actually it's actually necessary. Yeah. And I'm really having to reframe how I think about it because, you know, I've reached a certain level of success in my career where people expect things from me. Yeah. And want things from me constantly. And so it's a yeah. lot of work to just be like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah. Nope. I love you. And I also I can't. Yes. <laughs> so. Let's talk about knitting. You published a book last year called Knitting for Self-Care. I want to talk about the book in a second, but let's talk about knitting as self-care. Like when oh, yeah. did you, in your evolution, just when did it occur to you in that sort of coalescence of, you know, creative brandy and human brandy realize like, oh, this is the, like, this is my work, but it's also my self-care. Like, how did that happen for you? So, you know... Something that I realized about myself really at a younger age was that I was really like naturally really creative, right? Like I, I'm definitely a designer, you know, I, I take up a lot of different crafts really quickly, mostly because I like to deep dive. I'll be like, I'm going to be a potter and then I'll spend 12 hours in the studio and then I'm a potter. Like, you know, I'm going to be a video production person and then I like dive into Adobe Premiere and then I'm just like, boom, I'm a video, like I'm a movie editor, you know? So knitting was kind of like one of those things where like I just kind of really just dived really deep in at a really early age and this became like my own apprentice. And one thing that knitting is, is like knitting is so powerful. I think when people think about knitting, they say, oh, it's, such, it's like, a, it's so meditative and like, it's just so peaceful. I actually, that's not always my experience with knitting. Knitting can actually sometimes be really frustrating. It can test your patience. It can show you just how powerful and capable you are. And so that for me was like what really drew me to knitting was that it had its own language, you know, mm. it, it kind of really established that I had a capacity to do something that other people didn't know how to do. Like I, I could read a language that other people didn't know how to read. And so really earlier on, I got really excited about the idea that I was so capable. And one thing about knitting is that once you learn how to do something, especially like specifically around knitting, like once I learned how to knit, like every other thing I've ever tried just seemed possible. You know, once you learn how to do something that you don't know how to do, especially something like knitting or like some kind of craft or something where you actually have to use like your hands and like, you know, raw materials that are often from the earth. It's a really powerful feeling. It, it kind of like really extends into all aspects of my life. And all of a sudden I was just like, okay, I'm going to be a crochet. I'm going to be a knitter now. Okay. I'm going to be a potter now. Okay. I'm going to be a poet now. Okay. I'm going to write a song now. Okay. I'm going to, you know, and it just kind of builds knitting really helped me 
just kind of believe in myself, you mm. know, like if I could do this, you know, I could do anything, you know, and it's powerful. And then when I started learning how to design clothes, so for me, I have like, I have like a, a womanly figure, like a stereotypically womanly figure and that I have like, you know, I have like a big bust, like a big chest, you know, I have hips, you know, and I, I it was hard for me to find clothes that could really fit me well. You know, I couldn't really, the way the industry is made, it's not really made for all bodies. And so I started learning how to design clothes pretty early on. Like my first design was, I was 16 years old when I designed for like my first backless halter top. Like I was like, I remember I wanted to follow a pattern. I was like, it was like the largest size was a D. I'm like, I'm a triple D dude. I can't fit this. So I had to like design my own like bra cup, which was really empowering to know that I, not only I, can I do something like what feels really complicated and it takes time to learn, but I actually could design clothes for my body and that could actually fit me, which was really empowering as well. So, you know, it kind of just made me feel more capable. I was able to create work that I wanted to create. And not only that, I started teaching knitting at a really early age. So I started working at Yarn Shop when I was 16. I started teaching others. And so that also was really empowering and powerful. Like, wow, not only can I do something that changes my life, but I can teach other people something that's going to change their lives. And it's just, it's just incredible. I love knitting, you know, and it definitely like people say, oh, I'm not, I don't, not patient enough. Or I'm not creative enough. And it's like, no, knitting, knitting teaches you patience. Knitting makes you creative. Like it, you don't have to find your creativity with knitting. Knitting, your creativity will find you as soon as you pick up the needles, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, and then you were like, let's make this a book. Yes. So how did you decide to, you know, write this book, Knitting as Self-Care? And what was the process like for you? Oh, man. So um, my editor from Abrams reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to talk about writing a book? And we met at a local cafe in Brooklyn. And she brought me a bunch of books just to say, hey, look, this could be you, (laughs) which is really sweet. And I came up with the idea pretty much on the spot. Like I kind of knew that I wanted to write a book about self-care and that I wanted to somehow incorporate knitting because my writing, something that I I realized about myself is that I'm not only like a knitter, right? Like I I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm a writer, you know, I'm a writer. I like writing. I am. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I'm a writer and also very vulnerable. Like I will, I like sharing parts of like what is difficult for me in life, what is difficult for me as an artist and like, and share why what what we want is possible and so I knew I wanted to kind of incorporate knitting as like this is something that encourages us to be courageous and then also write about what creativity is and what what being a courageous person means and how knitting can can really support that and how we could take better care of ourselves and how we could take better care of our community and our world and so I I kind of I kind of knew generally that I also wanted to pay homage to like other women and other queer people in my life. So Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison, you know, like the the greats, you know, I knew that I wanted to like pay homage to the greats and share their quotes in the book and let that be kind of like the skeleton for a lot of the essays that I have in each chapter. And as I started to write, you know, that's where I kind of started to use words as a way to dive deep into some of these aspects so like one of the one of the first essays in the book and one of the garments is called tambolo and tambolo is like a sandy isthmus it's like a bridge 
And I kind of use this as a metaphor for, you know, it's a bridge that connects a mainland, a tumbler is a, is a, is a bridge that creates a mainland to an island, right? So I kind of try and bring these two worlds together by saying, okay, let's imagine our everyday existence of like, we have to wash our clothes, take care of the kids, work for money, right, is our mainland. And the island is our creativity, the things that feed us, the thing that makes us excited to be alive and want to wake up and like the things that encourage us to rest and take the very best care of ourselves, right? What in our life can we do to build the bridge between the mainland and the island such that we can easily, anytime we're like having a, a rough day or whatever, we can say, oh, you know what? I'm going to walk across this bridge and I'm going to paint a picture. Oh, okay. I'm done painting my picture. Time to take care of the kids, right? Like how can we traverse our creative self in our day-to-day lives any day at any time? Because people see like creativity as two separate things. Like I don't have time to be creative. I hear that a lot. I don't have time to read. I don't have time to paint. I don't have time to create that business I want to create because I have five kids, which I understand my mom had a lot of kids and she worked a lot. You know, I understand that. I, I don't have enough time to paint. I don't have enough time to read. Right. Like what what do we need to do <laughs> to make it so that that's not a part of our vocabulary anymore, that we don't have time for our creativity. Right. And these essays kind of start to build on that. How do we do that? We say no, we identify our priorities, we ask questions about what it is we're really passionate about. Like what is the world that we actually wanna live in, the life we wanna live? And once we start digging into those questions, we start to see that all of a sudden time opens up for knitting and for painting and for writing and for reading. And all of a sudden our everyday life is filled with creativity. And we enjoy our lives more, you know, and I, I think something that I don't think a lot of us realize is that our unhappiness is very much connected to our creative deficiency, you know, and creativity really is just about ingenuity, the ability to problem solve, right? You're really creative. It's our ability to problem solve. And so that, you know, when you're tired and you're exhausted, you're less likely to come up with solutions, right? Like you're just like, I can't even think, I don't even can't even think about this. So a big part of what Knitting for Radical Self-Care talks about, like my book talks about, is rest. Like the first thing we do, we need to figure out how do we rest more deeply. <laughs> and of course, I, I quote Trisha Hersey, who is coming out with a book, Rest as Resistance. Mm. This idea of rest as resistance. Nat Bishop, got a shout out, Nat Bishop, Nat Ministry. You know, I quote Trisha, I quote, you know, about how rest is resistance. And it actually empowers us to to be able to be more creative and to create the world that we want to live in and create the lives we want to enjoy, you know. And so, I don't know, the book kind of got really complicated unintentionally. <laughs> My editor was like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. By the end of it, I was like, oh, can I add this other thing? She was like, Brandy, I think this is great. We could talk about it, but I think we don't need to add anything more. But yeah, that's how it kind of became a book. You know, I took all my own photographs. They're every, beautiful, by the way. Thank you so much. You know, every essay has like a different theme that really kind of centers around creativity, rest, care, not only for ourselves, but for our community. And I kind of represent those ideas into knitted garments. So like the Audre Lord, the Audre Cowell is named after Audre Lord, And there's like this like real huge, it's like a knitted spine almost. Mm. And I kind of talk about this idea of like, it being kind of like a like a piece of armor, like it's a it's a power tool, you know, because Audrey talks a lot about power and about identity. And so this this garment is kind of like really structured and powerful and it's kind of like armor, you know. So I try and find ways to 
bring to life the ideas in my garments. And I, I think for some of them, it really makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working with a grad student right now. I'm a mentor in a MFA program and mm-hmm. clothing for her. She makes clothing as part of her art practice. And I mean, there's just so much metaphor for clothing and protection. And yeah, I mean, it's really like her work has really opened my mind up to that. So to close, I want to talk about trusting. Yeah. You wrote back in, um, you are a phenomenal writer and poet. Thank and you. I, I eat up your <laughs> words, but I actually wrote this one down. And you wrote this before your book came out. So I think this was a kind of a, maybe a time of a bit of anxiety for you, right? Because, you know, Probably. like this thing that you'd worked on is going out into the world. And, you know, as somebody who's published 10 books, I, I know that feeling very well. You said, I'm trusting the things that cause me to doubt myself will lighten its hold on my work through making, writing and rest. Mm-hmm. I'm trusting when I fall off course overworked and undernourished, I can always find my way back. I'm trusting everything is right on time. Fun fact, I'm like in the middle of trying to buy a new house with my wife right now. And we are having a horrible time at this moment with the underwriters, you know, approving us for this loan. And it's possible it might not go through. And just reading that is like, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. And I'm trusting that even when things don't go the way I want, that it's still things are going to, you know, the next thing will happen. Right. And that wisdom of trusting is just to me so important. And I love how you talk about it. So much of our anxiety is caused by not trusting. And and even when we can get to trusting the wisdom of anxiety, because anxiety itself has so much wisdom, right? Like what it's telling us about where we need more rest or nourishment. Mm -hmm. We're always in a more powerful place. So talk about the role of trust in how you kind of approach your life. Oh, my goodness. So I I think a part of being a designer for me, I can be really controlling. It's something that I like I have a way I want things to be. And then I'm really resistant when it's not like that. And then I get frustrated and then I have anxiety, right? And I think it has a lot to do with wanting to feel like I know what's going to happen, right? Like I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know that everything's going to be okay. And if I don't know that for sure, then I'm frustrated. (laughs) Well, and it's funny you say that you're speaking in the first person, but like literally every human being wants to know everything's going to be okay. (laughs) Yeah. All, all of us, you know, it's all of, all us. of us. So, yeah. you know, for me, trust really, there are so many times things haven't happened and I've been like, oh no, this thing hasn't happened or this thing fell through. And then all of a sudden another door opened and I was just like, wow, like actually that thing that fell through was creating space for this other opportunity. And that has happened so often for me, Lisa, like where something has fell through and then literally another door has opened. And so I just kept getting evidence that my life was actually exactly where it needed to be at exactly the right time. You know, I feel like kind of like a, like a late bloomer in a lot of ways, you know, even in my career right now, I feel like right on time, like I finally have the brand that I envisioned. I have like the business model that I want to really build upon. Like I feel, I feel really, really excited about that. 
And, you know, years ago, you know, I just was like, nothing's happening the way I want it. Is this happening too slow? Like, you know, I just remember crying and being like, I'm going to fail. And like, everything is awful, you know? <laughs> and like, I just need more money and I need more time and I need more support. And like, the world's against me. And I definitely had like this moment of like real anxiety around like what I wanted and feeling like it wasn't happening, you know? And it just, and it sounds like you felt a little bit like you didn't have any agency either. Yeah, like there was definitely some like a kind of powerlessness. And I, I go in and out of this. There are moments where I feel really powerful and really like I'm a badass, you know. And then there are days where I'm just like, I'm a loser, <laughs> you know. And it really, it, it depends, you know, it really depends on the day, to be honest. But trust for me, when I really start to say, okay, all I can do, all I can do is take care of what I, I have the capacity to take care of, right? Which is I can try and go to bed at a decent time so I get enough rest. I can try and drink eight glasses of water. You know, I can try and stay hydrated. I can try and just really communicate and try and communicate with the people in my life, let them know I love them. I can make work every day. If I can just do the work that I have the capacity to do, everything else will fall into place. I also kind of started to trust that, you know, and it depends, you know, it depends on how you feel about God, right? Like you might be capital G, you might be lower G, you know, it might be the entity, the universe, you know, however you, if you're listening, like however you think about God. For me, I truly, I believe in God, like the universe is working and conspiring in our favor. I feel like the universe, nature was designed to bring us happiness like you ever go to a park and lay in the grass and just look up and feel so deeply supported like that's not by accident you know like that you know you ever you ever go to an ocean and like just and just watch the water come onto shore and just feel like every time it pulls out it pulls everything all the anxiety out of you and it comes back in with so much strength and encouragement it's mm. by design that we're supposed to be powerful and relaxed and happy and i think is when we start to get into our heads and we start to overthink and we start to doubt what the universe has provided what god has provided you know is when we start to feel anxiety is when we start to doubt ourselves so for me, trust comes with knowing that everything around me was actually designed and conspiring in my favor. A beautiful, beautiful, like there's this incredible meditation teacher. His name is Dr. Love, John Love, love him. And he, you know, and it's a really beautiful meditation. I recommend just sitting in it. And he says, I am sitting in the reign of perpetual miracles. And just like keep this, like literally sit down with a deep breath. I am sitting in the rain of perpetual miracles. And you just chant that, and you chant that, and you chant that, and you start to look around and you realize that the world is a miracle. And if we just trust that it's working in our favor, it does always, always, always. And you know, it takes practice. Like for me, a big part of my care practice is stretching. Mm. Like just stretching. I'm not much of a like a meditation person where I sit and like watch my thoughts pass. I, I, I don't know. I like to move around. I'm restless. You know, I like <laughs> doing things. I like moving around. So stretching really helps me. Deep breaths. Anything that empowers me to stay in this present moment and be mindful, like not thinking about the past or thinking about the future or brooding about what I can't control, actually really helps me to trust that. Everything is going to happen in its time and in my favor. You know, the more mindful I am, the better I take care of myself, 
the more I trust that everything's going to happen exactly as it should. Mm. Thank you. I mean, personally, thank you. I needed to hear that today. I want to go to Church of Brandy every day. <laughs> thank you. And that was like such a beautiful way to end this conversation because I feel like that's a reminder that we all need to hear every single day. Thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. In the show notes, I'm going to link to your website, your book, your Instagram, so people can follow you and learn more from you because you are an amazing teacher. Oh, thank you, Lisa. This is beautiful. I love talking with you. I love the questions you ask and the conversation that we had. I, I hope it really touches people and like, you know, this empowers each and every single one of us to go for what it is we want and to know that it's, it's going to happen. Yep, exactly. Thank you so much, Brandy. Thank you, Lisa. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.